0: Now the Philistines fought against Israel. The Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines were in hot pursuit of Saul and his sons, and they killed his sons Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and when the archers overtook him, they wounded him critically. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and run me through, or these uncircumcised fellows will come and run me through and abuse me. But the armor-bearer was terrified and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he too fell on his sword and died with him. So Saul and his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men died together that same day. When the Israelites along the valley and those across the Jordan saw the Israelite army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died, they abandoned their towns and fled. And the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor, and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. They put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and fastened his body to the wall of Beth-shan. When the people of jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all their valiant men marched through the night to Beth-shan. They took down the bodies of Saul and his sons from the wall of Beth-shan and went to Jabesh, where they burned them. Then they took their bones and buried them. Under a tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and they fasted seven days. And now from 2 Samuel chapter 5. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people at Israel, and you shall become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. The king and his men marched to Jerusalem to attack the Jebusites who lived there. The Jebusites said to David, you will not get in here. Even the blind and the lame can ward you off. They thought, David cannot get in here. Nevertheless, David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. On that day, David had said, anyone who conquers the Jebusites will have to use the water shaft to reach those lame and blind who are david's enemies that is why they say the blind and lame will not enter the palace david then took up residence in the fortress and called it the city of david he built up the area around it from the terraces inwards and he became more and more powerful because the lord god almighty was with him now hiram king of Tyre, sent envoys to david along with cedar logs and carpenters and stonemasons and they built a palace for david then david knew that the lord had established him as king over israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people israel after he left hebron david took more concubines and wives in jerusalem and more sons and daughters were born to him these are the names of the children born to him there shemua shobab nathan solomon Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhiah, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. When the Philistines heard that David had been anointed king over Israel, they went up in full force to search for him. But David heard about it and went down to the stronghold. Now the Philistines had come out and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go and attack the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hands? The Lord answered him, Go, for I will surely deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal-perazim, and there he defeated them. He said, As waters break out, the Lord has broken out against my enemies before me. So that place was called Baal-perazim. The Philistines abandoned their idols there, and David and his men carried them off. Once more, the Philistines came up and spread out in the valley of free fame. So David inquired of the Lord, and he answered, Do not go straight up, but circle round behind them and attack them in front of the poplar trees. As soon as you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the poplar trees, move quickly, because that will mean the Lord has gone out in front of you to strike the Philistine army. So David did as the Lord commanded him and he struck down the Philistines all the way from Gibeon to Gezer.
1: Well, as you've heard, and you may even be wearing a poppy, today is Remembrance Sunday. Countless wars have marred our world since human beings first discovered how to make weapons. But two wars of the 20th century were so extensive that people called them world wars. Do you know how many people lost their lives in World War I? Estimated at 40 million. But World War II was far worse. Between 70 and 85 million people died. Now, that was 3% of the world's population in 1940. And it was only ended by the detonation of atomic bombs. For the first time in history, people had made weapons that could now actually destroy the human race. Now, it's really fitting that we're in 1 and 2 Samuel today, which is a part of the Bible that's preoccupied with war and peace. It's all about vying kings and kingdoms. Who will win? And a couple of chapters, chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, we read the story of David and Bathsheba. We'll come to that in a, in a week or two. Now, that chapter 11 begins with these words. Let's listen to this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war. In the spring. Oh, wait, what? it's spring. Okay get out my sword and my horse we're going to go and fight someone it's kind of i don't know if the writer is being ironic with that sentence but it is a sentence that covers a world of misery every spring let's go and fight and the last chapters of first samuel and the first chapters of second samuel are full of battles intrigues murder war it is violent it's brutal it's chaotic what is going on now the point according to a very good commentary and writer Tim Chester is here we have the key to understanding history through all the machinations of history God works to establish his king the key to history is this through all the machinations of people through all the the dealings of power politicians and power breakers God is working to establish his king that is the point the key to history God is working to establish his king And therefore, that is the key to our lives as well. And we're going to see this story unfold in three stages. The first one is the tragic fall of tall Saul. You got it? The tragic fall of tall Saul. The second one is the surprising rise of little David. The surprising rise of little David. And the third point is the choice we are all making. First, the tragic fall of tall Saul. Uh, Back to uh, at the end of 1 Samuel, if you would, back to... uh, Chapter 31, we read this account of how it all ended up for Saul. Verse 1, the Philistines fought against Israel, the Israelites fled before them, and many fell dead on Mount Gilboa. This is very brief, and all the more poignant for it, the Israelites are losing. Verse 2 and 3, now homes in on one family, a noble king, Saul, and his three sons, and the sons are butchered. And now Saul himself has been hit by arrows, he's pierced, but he's still standing, but he knows that the end is close. Those of you who are fans of the Lord of the Rings books and the Lord of the Rings uh, films, which were uh, very prominent a few years ago, will remember the flawed hero, Boromir, once a great warrior who gave in to the temptations of power, represented by the one ring. Boromir eventually gave his life to defend the others in a battle with the monstrous orcs. And Boromir was shot numerous times with arrows, but he continued to fight on, sank to his knees, until finally he was killed. He fought to the end. But there is not going to be a heroic blaze of glory for King Saul. He knows his enemies, these guys, the Philistines. He knows what they do to people that they capture alive in battle it will be a fate worse than death he would be tortured in unimaginable pain for as long as they could drag it out and he would be subjected to the most excruciating shame no he knows it's better to die now Saul is a broken man he's seen his son's fall so he turns to his armor bearer this loyal soldier by his side and he says will you just kill me Please, let's get it over with. But the guy is terrified. He won't dare do it because Saul is God's king. So Saul falls on his own sword. I can't imagine doing something like that. I'm a person who gets upset if he cuts his little finger with the bread knife. Fall on your own sword? I think that's where we get the expression from. And then in verse 5, the armor bearer sees that it's all up for him as well, and he does the same thing. And then in verse 7, there's a comprehensive route. It says that uh, the Israelites along the valley and across the Jordan Sea that the army had fled and that Saul and his sons had died. And they abandoned their towns and they flee. And the Philistines then move in. Now, this is a little verse that has immense implications. The Israelites' land is now occupied. They're losing their home. Their most formidable enemies, the Philistines, have come in and it's the beginning of the end for God's chosen people. And then in verses 8 and 9, it kind of gets worse because the Philistines are plundering the dead and they find the bodies of Saul and his sons and they think, ha ha, here they are. They're gloating in triumph. They find Saul, it's quite obvious because he's taller than everybody else. They strip his armor off. They cut off his head. Maybe they even play football with it. And then, They preach the gospel. What? Yes, they preach the gospel. Have a look at verse 9. They cut off his head and stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim the news in the temple of their idols and among their people. The Greek translation of this um, verse uses the word that we translate as evangelize preach the good news they preach the good news that Saul is done and what they're really saying is our God's won, our God's reign this is a theological claim and verse 10 for poor Saul is the ultimate indignity they take his body and they hang it on a wall to be exposed and to be eaten by those birds and crows and vultures that want to peck it away now in the old testament this is a terrible thing to happen, if a person's remains were exposed and desecrated after they died, it meant that they were under a curse. It means there is no rest for you. You're not resting in peace. It means you're being punished even after your death. You are cursed. And this travesty explains this huge risk that some people take from a place called Jabesh Gilead. They remember many years before Saul had actually rescued them in a dramatic battle and they're still grateful. So they travel all night, some brave guys, and they come and take down the bodies and they, 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 they march all night back and they honor him in his death, burn the, burn the remains which by now are rotten and give his bones a decent burial. They give some final dignity to the defeated king. The tragic fall of tall Saul. Why do I say tragic? If you've been following along with this series, you know Saul wasn't, was no perfect model of humanity. He was no saint. Why was it tragic? Because you know Saul had so much going for him. His height, he was head and shoulders taller than any other man. He had impressive stature, gave him a commanding presence. We would say he had charisma, leadership presence. He was chosen by sacred lot by the spiritual leader of the people, Samuel. He was anointed king in a formal ceremony. He won popular acclaim with victory after victory. He was their first king and he really looked the part. He was their guy and the majority of people stood by him through thick and thin. And yet, Saul was a study in failure. Where did it all go wrong? He stubbornly refused to admit when he'd done wrong. And he would not humble himself in repentance before God. Now this stubborn streak in Saul, he wouldn't admit when he'd done wrong. It led to a rift in his relationship with Samuel, the spiritual leader of the nation. And Saul then spiraled into isolation, jealousy, fits of rage, manic behavior. Generated by David, his younger rival. And we might feel some sympathy for Saul. You know, his frailty does remind us of ourselves sometimes. But his failure was not inevitable. It was the result of choices, choice after choice that he made himself and constantly made in his relationship with God. Now, the interesting thing about this is that David is no perfect saint either. Later on, David is going to commit some sins that are probably worse than Saul in our eyes. But Saul's the one that ends up in tragedy. Why? Because at bottom, he set himself up in opposition to God. And the first commandment of the Ten Commandments is the greatest one. You shall have no other gods before me. God must come first. Joyce Baldwin was an Old Testament scholar. She wrote these words. As a man is in the presence of his God, so is he. Perhaps if Joyce Baldwin was writing now, she would include women. So let me change the the quote. As a man or woman is, is in the presence of their God, so are they. What are you like when you stand before God? Just you and him. You see, at heart, Saul was a worldly king. He trusted in the strategies of this world. He looked at the cultures around him for guidance in how to be king. He trusted in the weapons of this world. All through 1 Samuel, the writer subtly emphasizes the link between Saul and his armor, Saul and his weapons. In the Goliath episode, it's Saul who tries to equip David with with armor and a helmet and and, and weapons. Then, um, From then on, every time we see Saul, he's carrying a spear. He's dependent on it. Then there's this issue with the the armour bearer. He he has to have an armour bearer with him. He he has to fall on his sword. Even in his death, the Philistines take his armour and take it back to their temple. Saul is always associated with these strategies, this weaponry of this world. And in some ways, his armour has gone back to its home. Because trusting in human armour is a Philistine thing to do. It is a God replacement. That's what Saul trusted. And not just armour, but power games and manipulative politics as well. We saw that in some of the episodes where Saul tried to control David from taking away his influence. These strategies are an emphasis on what is seen, what can be grasped, what you think you can control in life. They are worldly and we see that they destroyed him in the end. Saul's fall was tragic. Now, in contrast to that, we see little David and his surprising rise. Now, you might say, well, why is it surprising? We know from earlier on in 1 Samuel, God was the one that chose David, was specially picked out. Yeah, that's right. But in the eyes of everyone else in the story, David is a really shock choice, a surprising king. Very few people really believed in him, enough to trust their lives to him. You remember when Samuel went to his home and asked Bring out your sons, so one of them's going to be chosen to be king. And, Sam, and David's dad brought out the seven oldest ones. He didn't even bother calling for David. He's just out there with the sheep. So they're shepherd boy. So his own father has got low expectations. Maybe you can sympathize with that. He's the smallest, it says, of the eight sons. And then he did beat Goliath and won great victories, but soon it's quickly followed by opposition from the king, Saul. And all the power is on Saul's side. Humanly speaking, armies, weapons, chariots, popular appeal. Saul's got it all. It leads to exile, a manhunt. His name was slurred. David takes refuge in a cave. 400 guys come and gather around him. Who are these guys? This is what it says in chapter 22 all those who were distressed, or in debt, or discontented. What a great bunch of people! You know, these are the. <laughs> I'm on the run and these are the guys I've got. They're distressed, you know, half of these guys are crying and depressed. They're in debt, they've got no money, and they're just discontented. There's a bunch of people around him. It's hardly the SAS. He's always on the run. He has a few hundred ragtag guys with him and a bounty on his head. And the thing about David is, the other surprising thing, he constantly refuses to take matters into his own hands. Even when there's an amazing opportunity to kill Saul, when Saul decides to take a comfort break in a cave where David is hiding, David refuses to do it. We heard about this last week. A wonderful message from Jez. The men are even trying to God talk it. Look, the Lord's given him into your hands. Just go and kill him now. We can get this done with. Stop living in a cave. David's like, I wouldn't dare lay a finger on the Lord's anointed. He just cuts off a corner of his robe. And then later on, there's another episode where David has a similar opportunity. But he would not take Saul's life. It would lack all integrity. Saul was God's anointed king. It was not for David to follow the ways of the ancient world and bump him off like a mafia warlord. David must wait for God's timing. And that wait takes forever. Or so it feels. And so he did. Even when Saul was dead... David refused to play power politics. The first four chapters of 2 Samuel are a squalid story of power brokers, warlords, and people making their moves, jockeying for position to try and take some power now that there's a vacuum created by the death of Saul. This is how people always behave in the world when there's a leadership vacuum, don't they? But David will not join in their games. He will not grasp power He doesn't celebrate the removal of his rival. He actually writes a a poetic tribute. He laments the fall of Israel's king. Various characters then start to sort of circle around. And they see a chance to try and further their career. And try and get some favour with David. Because they think "He's he's a likely candidate. Maybe I'll get alongside him. But David will not play their games. Two guys actually come along and there's a puppet king that's been installed by the warlord Abner these two this king is called Ishbosheth and he's reigning there but he's really the power behind the throne is the general over the army and these two guys think we're going to we're going to take Ishbosheth down and then we're going to take his head and give it to David and that way we're going to align ourselves with David so they go in and while the guy is sleeping they kill him cut off his head And run for their lives. And they go to David and and they bring it back as, as proof that they've they've done it. And they say, There you go, David, take your crown. But David refuses to do it. In the midst of all the scheming, all the betrayal, all the violence of these chapters, David constantly entrusts himself to God. He basically says, I don't need people to bump off my rivals to protect me. My protector is the living God. And the Lord is not dead. He lives, and it is He who will protect me from my enemies. And all of this behavior is underpinned by a deep conviction that God is to be trusted. God is to be trusted in spite of the delays, in spite of the uncertainty, where you don't know what's going on, in spite of the messiness of life, God is to be trusted. The message of the Bible can be summed up in two words Trust me. Perhaps that's a message that someone here needs to hear today. You're in a place of great uncertainty, confusion, hurt, mess. You don't know what's going on. The message of God's word to you is Trust me. David did. He's an example to us in the midst of chaos. And eventually, after years of running, scared, and years of waiting, the Lord made his move. David was appointed the king, but not through scheming, not through politics, but through proper channels. And then God gave him victories like no other. Turn over, please, to Second Samuel chapter 5. This is the summary chapter about David's rule. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 3. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah for seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah for 33 years. It was a golden era. First of all, David took the capital city, which they thought no one could, could take. They said even, uh, even the lame and the blind could defend this place. It's so strong. But David managed to conquer it. He, he established a capital city that would last the people for, for centuries. He then defeats the Philistines, these great enemies. He drives them out. And in a wonderful moment, the Philistines actually abandon their gods, their idols, and run for the hills. And they take their gods away from them. So where's your, where, where's your gospel now? The living God has defeated them. And that's the refrain all through this. God has done it all. Chapter 5, verse 10. He became more and more powerful because the Lord God Almighty was with him. Chapter 5, verse 12. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. Do you see the point that this writer is getting across to us? In the midst of history, how surprising that it was little David who should become the conquering king. He didn't look the part. He was doubted. He was opposed. He was persecuted. He didn't use the levers of power. He wasn't a politician. He waited. At times he almost gave up. He was frequently depressed. If you don't believe me, read the Psalms. But he hung on. He trusted. And the main point again is this. The key to understanding history is that through all the machinations of human beings, God works to establish his king, the most unlikely king. And so God makes David the king. He anoints him. And if you've been around for this series, you will know that the word in Hebrew for the anointed king is the word we call Christ. David is a Christ. The tragic fall of tall Saul surprising rise of little David and then thirdly and finally the choice we're all making you see this sermon could kind of stop now and end in the world of ancient history uh, unless we made a crucial move which is to ask what it means for us we've got to ask this key question whenever we open the bible what does God intend to do in my life with this text what does God intend to do with my life with this text and the answer here is God wants us to ask which kingdom we're seeking and which king we're trusting. You see that? There's two kings, two kingdoms here. And, and, and all the time you're either trusting one or the other. God is asking you today, which kingdom are you seeking in your life and which king are you trusting? Now, you might be saying, king? Kingdom? I'm a voting member of a parliamentary democracy. I don't have a king. Well, we've got a queen, and she's lovely. She's not really a king like these guys. Of course, kingship has changed a lot since 1000 BC. But human hearts have not changed. And according to the Bible, we all seek a kingdom, and we all trust a king to get us there, a ruler. Now, in the ancient world, the kingdom was the place that you would be safe the place where I can be secure, the place where my life can flourish. You'd have a place where you could belong, and you'd enjoy life. You'd enjoy peace, abundance, prosperity. You could flourish, and that is what we all want. And so in the ancient world, the king was vital because the king is the only way I'm going to get the kingdom that my heart craves. I want a king who can deliver. I want a king who can be trusted, who I can put my lot in with, and so they yearned for this. They yearned for a good king who would bring about the kingdom that they wanted. And, you know, we are no different to them. We're all putting our trust in someone or something for our lives. We're all seeking a kingdom. Now, your world, your culture, says that your kingdom might be a person, a romantic relationship, someone who will just fulfill all your dreams and hopes, Or your kingdom might be your success, your career, that you can be someone in this world. Or your kingdom might be your family. You know, I might not amount to much, but at least my children will be great. Or your kingdom might even be the right amount of money to give you security, so you anxiously check your bank balance every day. Now, the key to these kingdoms are the kings that we put our trust in. We put our trust in control. If I can control life enough, then I'll get what I need. We put our trust in approval. If people would only like me enough, then I'll be okay. We put our trust in power. If I can exercise enough influence, I'll be someone. We put our trust in comfort. We trust these kings to give us life to give us the kingdom that we seek now how do you know what you trust new york pastor and writer tim keller says this the greatest nightmare of the approval addict is rejection how are you when people reject you the greatest nightmare of the power addict is humiliation how are you when you're humiliated The greatest nightmare of the comfort addict is suffering. The greatest nightmare of the control addict, uncertainty. Friends, what are you trusting in today for your life, for your kingdom? There is a better king. The key, again, to understanding history is that through all the machinations, God is working to establish his king. And his king is called Jesus. Jesus Christ, meaning an anointed king, and Jesus is the ultimate Christ. And like David, he refused to seize power. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, Satan, humanity's oldest enemy, made an attempt to take Jesus into his service. He made him a satanic offer of a fast track to glory and to kingship. He said, if you only bow down to me and worship me, then I will make you ruler over all these things. It was to bypass the torment and agony of the cross and become king by a shortcut. But the price to pay for that was submission to the devil himself. And as costly as it was, Jesus refused the offer, even though it would cost him the cross. God was going to give Jesus a kingdom, and it would be an eternal one, which is free from compromise. God vindicated Jesus Christ. And therefore he can vindicate you if you are in him. We thought about the tragic fall of somebody who was very impressive by his world standards. Who, ha- who seemed to have it all. But who collapsed in on himself and ended up taking his own life. We have sort of thought about the surprising elevation of someone who actually was very obscure. And yet God established him as a king who brought peace to his people. And so for us now here in 2019, we all have a choice to make and you're making it right now which king you're going to follow. And you're either following Jesus Christ or something else. And whatever that other thing is, it will destroy you. Now following Jesus is not the easy path. If you live in this country, if you're going to stay here for a while or you're a british citizen you know that we are in a very small minority to be a bible believing christian it's not an easy path to follow jesus but jesus is god's king who will be established in due time some of you following jesus will cost you a great deal it might cost you relationships it might cost you a career it might even cost you your life so we all have to ask is this king worth it And the Bible's answer is, he really, really is. Let's pray.